Um, there's a prayer, I think, as we look at this psalm from the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which I think is helpful. Light in our darkness, we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of thy only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Psalm 88 is one of only two psalms, I think only two chapters in the whole Bible, that certainly on first reading, and actually on second and third and fourth reading, have no hope within them. Other psalms express despair, like Psalm 22, but they either end up with or during contain uh, an antidote to that. And so this seems a very strange song to have and a very um, discouraging song. But for me, it's one of these things that if you say, I've hidden your word in my heart, there will come a time for most of us when this song will be incredibly helpful to you. So although perhaps you don't feel like this tonight, and perhaps you do, but it's kind of like an arrow that you can have that you keep and that you can use if you understand what this is about. Now, as it happens, today is Holocaust Memorial Day. And that is one of the hardest things to face up to. So much so that a recent survey found that about 1 in 20 British people don't think that the Holocaust happened, and about 12% think that it's greatly exaggerated. Well, there are still people alive, and um, I've heard some of them. I think there's still a lady in Dundee, actually, who... uh, were victims of the Holocaust in that they were in the concentration camps. And if you've ever been to Auschwitz, it is uh, an incredibly sobering experience. And I think a, a, a song like this uh, helps people actually who have gone through something like that. Incidentally, it's also 25 years ago <coughs> that Schindler's List came out And for me, that's still an incredibly motivational film. I know for many people it's a depressing film, and for me, it's a depressing film. But it's a a film which reminds us of the darkness that is in the earth. Now, my good lady uh, pointed me to a sermon by, guess who, Tim Keller, (coughs) uh, on Psalm 88. And it's absolutely outstanding, and I just, just Google it. It was. I've listened to it a couple of times this week, and it really was just tremendously encouraging and helping to understand this psalm. And one of the things he says is this, that in the place of the deepest suffering, there is no better place to learn about the grace of God. And that's difficult. So what we're going to do is just very simply... The, the psalm splits into three parts. I'm not going to go through bit by bit. I'm going to show you what's in each of these three parts. So first of all, the psalmist, who's a man called Heman the Ezrahite, <coughs> and the, the language that's used at the beginning, the Mahalith Leonoth, probably means the, to the tune, the song of the afflicted. So it wasn't a cheerful tune either. Um, and understandably, again, so it's a lament. The one thing that comes across, or there's three things actually that come across in each of the three stanzas of this song. 
First is this, that he prays. Heman the Ezrahite prays. Verses 1 and 2. O Lord, the God who saves me, day and night I cry out before you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Verse 9. I call to you, O Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. And verse 13. But I cry to you for help, O Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. In other words, this psalm is just one long, desperate cry. We have a kind of strange view of prayer, I think. We think prayer is a bit like you pray, you ask God for something, because you pray, God gives it to you. But prayer is not often like that. Other people think you pray and you have this sense of God's presence and you praise God and it's just wonderful, you're caught up into heaven. And again, although that can happen, a lot of the time it's not like that. Sometimes it's like this, maybe not as intense as this or as desperate as this, but this is somebody who's crying out to God and he's saying, why are you not saving me? So let's go back to the Holocaust. What if you are in Auschwitz? What if you are, let's say if you know the story of Corrie ten Boom and her sister and the, the pain and the sorrow and the suffering and, and you're crying out, Lord, we can't take any more of this. And you get more. And you get more. And you get more. In, if you know your Bible, it's not unusual. Who is the psalmist speaking about? It could be that he's talking about his own experience. Or he could be that he's talking about King Uzziah who had leprosy and was himself confined. Or King Hezekiah who became seriously ill. Or Jeremiah, the prophet, who was confined and put in a pit, because that's another theme in the psalm about being confined. Or Lamentations, a whole book, weeping over the destruction of Jerusalem. Or Job, the longest poem. And it's just, Job is extraordinarily beautiful, but extraordinarily painful. We don't know, but we do know this, that this man, Heman the Ezraite, mentioned in First Chronicles 6.33, here are the men who served together with their sons from the Kohathites, Heman the musician, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. Heman was a musician. And uh, the blues were not invented in the Delta in Mississippi, they were invented here. Uh, this, is a, this is a blues song par excellence. Um, just as an aside, if you like blues music, and I love blues music, absolutely love it, but you can only really understand it if you go to the Delta in Mississippi and you see the flat cotton fields and experience the sweltering heat and then realize that the African Americans were slaves in those appalling conditions. And it's out of that came the blues and it went up to Chicago where again the African Americans were in slums largely and often mistreated and it was a, a cry or to, to God often and that's what's happening here that here's somebody who is reflecting the experience of people who they don't know how to Rejoice, if you like. And they don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And that's the second thing. The psalmist prays and he experiences deep darkness. So look at verse 6. 
You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depths. In the darkest depths. Verse 12. Are your wonders known in the place of darkness or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? Or verse 18. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. The darkness is my closest friend. The darkness. What is the darkness? Some of you will have a far better ability to explain what that is than others because you've experienced it. The heaviness of soul and spirit. The feeling that your body is wrong. The fear that stops you sleeping at night. The terrors of the night. The awful thoughts that God has rejected you. The awful thoughts that God is not there. The blackness. The discouragement. The depression. The self-loathing that comes from thinking that you are worthless and that others regard you as worthless. And perhaps even more, the idea that the whole world is really just darkness. Verse 7, your wrath lies heavily upon me. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. He feels that the darkness is the wrath of God. Verse 8, it's loneliness. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. Not even, not even that my friends have died, but my closest friends now despise me. You have taken my companions and loved ones from me. It's, there's a confinement. Verse 8, you've made me, I'm, I'm confined and I cannot escape. The darkness is not a place where you have great liberty and freedom. It's, it's a heaviness. It's a burden that, that pushes down on you and bears upon you and physically overwhelms you as well. And so verse 8 again, my eyes are dim with grief. You cry so that there are no tears left. And ultimately it's hopelessness. Because you'll know how the psalm begins, O Lord the God who saves me. And then the rest of the psalm is saying, but you don't. You are the God who saves me. You don't save me. How is this possible? I'm talking about you being the savior. I'm pleading with you. I'm crying with you. But no, this is like an empty formula. It's like someone when you are really struggling and you're really suffering and a Christian who means really well comes up and tells you that God really cares for you, that God really loves you. or that When you go through that experience, someone coming up with a, even well-meaning with a Christian truth but stroke cliche it doesn't really help he, he doesn't feel that he is the God who saves him he doesn't experience that salvation darkness is my closest friend what did we sing this morning what a friend we have in Jesus what is he saying he's saying darkness is better than Jesus or darkness is where I am compared with Jesus. Now, immediately, we're going to say, no, 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 that's wrong. Of course, it's not right, and so on. But the minute you do that, the minute you say that to someone, the minute you feel it within yourself, you just pile on and pile on guilt and discouragement and depression. We, we must not minimize the experience that's being described here. And we must not trivialize it because to do so will only add to the darkness of people who go through this 
And I pray to God you never go through it. Only twice in my life have I experienced anything like this and I would never, I never want to experience it again. It's a, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing. I, um, I kind of joked, oh, I'm sure Leonard Cohen will have something to say about this and he does. He has a song called The Darkness and it is just magnificent. I have no idea how Leonard Cohen, who was Jewish and then became a Buddhist and then uh, I don't know what he became, but towards the end of his life, he certainly wrote much more songs that were much more in tune with the Bible, and I pray that he did find the Lord. But in one of his later songs, he talks about the darkness, and he says this, I caught the darkness, it was drinking from your cup. I caught the darkness, drinking from your cup. I said, is this contagious? You said, just drink it up. I got no future. I know my days are few. The present's not that pleasant, just a lot of things to do. I thought the past would last me, but the darkness got that too. Now, that's, that's what's being described here. I haven't got a future. The present, not pleasant, just a lot of things to do. And the past, I thought I could live off the past, the good things from the past, but the darkness got in there too. The darkness came. Now, looking at this, you've got to ask the question, can a Christian experience this? And the answer is yes, of course. Because the dark valley where the light of Jesus does not seem to shine can happen for Christians. This is what the psalmist is a Christian. It's, it is very foolish to, to say that Christians cannot go through this. And, you know, we've been reading Romans 8. Romans 8 talks of a groaning creation. We are part of that groaning creation. We get sick, we get ill. And Annabelle tomorrow night is going to be speaking to the women, and I should have mentioned that. Please do come along tomorrow night uh, uh, in the hall here about mental health. And mental health is so important. It's so many different things. But a Christian understanding involved of mental health is to realize that the darkness can, can be spiritual as well. It's not always spiritual, and usually because we are complex beings, everything gets mixed up. But we can experience that. One of the things that Keller says in his sermon, which actually helped me, was I always used to think you can have the darkness, but it goes. You know, you come along to church, it's sorted. He says, no, the darkness can last a long time, which is maybe not very encouraging. But actually, if it has lasted a long time, that can be encouraging to you because the danger is that if you experience the darkness, you think, well, this is me. This is my fault. This is my sin. This is my guilt. Why am I not seeing the light? And it's interesting that this psalm is, I think, a psalm that's about walking without light and yet trusting the Lord. Say more about that in a moment. The third thing you'll notice is that he has this darkness, but obviously it involves death in each of them. Verse 5 I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. Verse 10, do you show your wonders to the dead? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you? And verse 15, from my youth I've been afflicted and close to death. I've suffered your terrors and am in despair. Now what's going on there? Not remembered. One of the worst things about being set apart with the dead is you're not remembered, you're forgotten. 
not just by human beings, but here there's a sense of rejection by God. My soul is in anguish. No one remembers you when he is dead. Psalm 6 says, verse 3 says this. Who praises you from his grave? Psalm 6, verse 5. My soul is in anguish. No one remembers you when he's dead. Oh, but Christians, we've got the resurrection and we're all looking forward to that. Yes, but be real. You can fear death as a Christian and you can wonder. And if you say in your head, I've got eternity in heaven and everything else all sussed and sorted out, I, I'm, I, I question that, honestly. I think we wrestle with these things as the psalmist did. What happens in the grave? Verse 6, it's the lowest pit, it's the darkest depths and that is ultimately what hell is. Hell is a place of darkness and of separation. It's not a place of light. It's not a place of enjoying yourself with your friends. It's a place of supreme loneliness, supreme burden. And sometimes in this world, we can get a little taste of that. And the psalmist cries out, do you perform miracles for the dead? No. Is your love declared in the grave? No. It's an overwhelming thing, and you get a foretaste of that. It can overwhelm you. And so William Cowper, who was a a poet, but also wrote a lot of hymns, he wrote a poem which didn't didn't become part of the only hymns, because I don't think you could sing it in a congregation. But he wrote a poem about the drowning of a seaman in an Atlantic gale. And he ended it saying this, No voice divine the light allayed, no light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, am whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. Cowper, a Christian, a lovely, lovely Christian, said, I am so overwhelmed that I'm in a worse place than the person who is drowning. Uh, the, the thought of drowning for me is just absolutely uh, appalling. It's no wonder that the psalmist has terrors and despair. Will he die under wrath? Will he die without hope and without God? Why is this happening to him? And here's the other thing. Be very careful, and I have to, I'm just say for me personally, this is something I have to be very careful of. In listening to people, sometimes we can come and we can sit like Job's friends and for seven days we can be silent with them and then on the eighth day we give them the answers, which are no answers. What if there are no answers? What if you ask the question and there's not an answer? Not that you know and not that you've been told. And this psalm, like Psalm 38, there is no answer. The question is asked and there is no answer. Now, sometimes in our lives we will find that we have a deep problem, a deep affliction, a deep despair. And the Lord wonderfully brings a great answer. And, and we are released and freed and healed and cured, or however you want to put it. But sometimes that either takes a long time in coming or we're not aware of an answer. And that's what we mean about walking without light and yet trusting the Lord. Alec Matier puts it this way. In life's storms, we encounter God's waves and in our fears, his terrors. That sovereignty which does not explain itself but which is brimful of infinite wisdom, love, power, and justice, 
which is therefore far beyond our grasp and sight, that sovereignty is our pillow, as Psalm 86 says, when all is darkness. So here's the interesting thing, and I think Mathieu is right. The sovereignty of God can become an oppressive thing to many people. But when you're in absolute black despair, it's the sovereignty of God in which you say, even in the darkness, I will trust him. Calvin had the same idea. It may be asked, he says, how can this wavering agree with faith when I'm full of doubts, when I'm full of fears, when I'm full of questions, when I'm so discouraged, when I cannot rejoice in the Lord? How then can this agree with faith? Well, Calvin says, it's true that when the heart is in perplexity and doubt, or rather is tossed hither and thither, faith seems to be swallowed up. But experience teaches us that faith while it fluctuates amidst these agitations, continues to rise again from time to time so as not to be overwhelmed. And if at any time it's at the point of being stifled, it's nevertheless sheltered and cherished, for though the tempest may become ever so violent, it shields itself from them by reflecting that God continues faithful and never disappoints or forsakes his own children." I find it quite astonishing that in some of the accounts of the Holocaust, you get people saying, I, know, I can't believe in God, I can't believe in God. You leave someone like Frankel's unbelievable, most extraordinarily beautiful writings and how he struggles with all of that. And yet he says the people who sustained themselves and the people who survived and the people who kept going were largely people who retained their faith. The people who gave up who lost their faith, couldn't continue. I've told you this before, but Anna Sutherland from Broda, a missionary with Christian Witness to Israel, she was a missionary for a while in Sydney. And she told us this story of how she was in a Jewish cafe. And she was sitting there and the table, uh, she was sitting talking to some Jewish friends, some young Jewish women, and they said, we can't believe in God because a lot of Jewish people don't. We can't believe in God. Why? Because of the Holocaust, because of Auschwitz. And Anna was thinking, what do I say? What do I say? They were relatively young women. And there was a tap on the table from an elderly woman sitting across the opposite table. And she said, I believe in God. And she rolled up her arm with her Auschwitz tattoo number on it. See, you go deep in the pit. And you think you could never, ever cope. And you could never, ever survive. But I'm telling you this. And... I will say this from my own experience, that sometimes the only thing that you've got left is a belief, not an experience, a belief that God is sovereign and that God is good. And that's all you've got. You can't say, count your blessings, name them one by one, because your blessings seem to have gone or seem to be insignificant compared to what you're facing. And that's what we mean by walking without light and yet trusting the Lord. And that's why this psalm is so helpful. Why? It's a psalm by somebody who's totally disorientated and cannot make sense of things. This is not someone writing a neat theological package. It's not someone saying, well, this is your problem, this is your problem, this is your problem, and this is the answer. This is someone saying, this is my problem, this was my problem, this was my problem, and I had no answer. And because it's a psalm written by someone who's totally disorientated and cannot make sense of things, therefore it's a psalm for those of us who are totally disorientated and cannot make sense of things. These things can happen, and this is really important, not because you deserve them, not because you've done something wrong, 
but because it's the world that we live in. It is only in heaven that all sorrow and tears are taken away. Only in heaven are all sorrow and tears taken away. Now, we get joy on earth. We can experience joy and and we should look for joy. Of course we should. And please don't say I'm saying that Christians should be miserable. But I'm saying when a Christian is miserable, it doesn't mean that they're a bad Christian. And it doesn't mean that they necessarily that they have sinned. Sometimes it can. But when we have a view of humanity and a view of God which is quite shallow, it can be quite harmful to people who really struggle in this way. Keller cites somebody who asks how he was and says, there's nothing wrong with me that the resurrection won't cure. And that's how you should look at it. There's nothing wrong with you that the resurrection won't cure. I I think of my friend at 17 years old with um, muscular dystrophy who was told he had a a year to live. Um, He didn't. He lived four years and we took him everywhere with us. And I always remember him saying, never forgot him saying, please don't pity me. Please don't pity me. You're dying too. And he says, when I get to heaven, my body will be perfect. And I am actually looking forward to it. And I remember a crass and crude Christian evangelist at a meeting pointing to him in his wheelchair and saying to him, if you have enough faith, you can get up out of that chair and walk. I hadn't been a Christian long. I was so wanted to stand up and thump that evangelist. It was so wrong. In fact, I got so angry that afterwards I spoke to him and he said, oh, God has called us. We've just got to have faith. And if you just had enough faith, if he just had enough faith, it was such a cruel thing to say. And I said to him, you're bald. And you've got false teeth. Why don't you get rid of your teeth and pray for God to give you hair and just have enough faith? It's such a stupid thing to say. Of course God can heal. But don't burden people with the idea that they can make their own healing. It's only in heaven that all tears and sorrows are taken away. Isaiah says this, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Listen to this. Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. It's fantastic to walk in the light. It's fantastic to know the truth of God's word and to feel it in in your own heart. But if you're walking in the dark, still trust in the name of the Lord. And I think the supreme example of that is set before us in in what we have in the communion. It's Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't saying it for effect. He wasn't saying it just to quote scripture. He was saying it because he felt it. And we are talking about the Trinity We are talking about the ultimate in love, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we are talking about one moment in time, the eternal God, the Son, felt that he was forsaken. He wasn't lying. Why have you forsaken me? This psalm, by the way, is one of the psalms for churches that celebrate um, Good Friday. It's one of the psalms that's used on Good Friday to show that Jesus went into the pit. 
You read this psalm and read it through the eyes of Christ. This is what Christ suffered for us. Rabbi Duncan's famous quote, there is no pit so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still. How could Christ experience my suffering? How could Christ experience my sin? How could Christ, the, the, the pure one, the holy one, the one who never sinned, experience the kind of loneliness and discouragement and fear about death? Be overwhelmed like a flood. Your wrath has swept over me. How could that be Christ? Because that's what he did. There's, um, and we'll see more of this next Sunday morning when we look at justification by faith alone. Do you know what? There's a, just a great illustration of that for me. And that is we are standing before God on the day of judgment. And we're standing and all our sin, all our wretchedness, all our twisted thoughts, all our manipulations, all our pettiness, all the things that we didn't even know about ourselves that others certainly didn't know. We're standing there completely exposed like that and we, we deserve and ought to be cast away from God. And Jesus comes and says, go away. And he stands in our place and says, I'll take it. And the father doesn't say, that's okay. The father says, you take it and you drink it to the bitter end. Take this cup from me, says Jesus in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. This is what Christ went through for us. Now, I'm, say, I'm not saying that... It, when you grasp that and when you realize that, that it, it instantly lifts whatever darkness you may feel. But I'm saying this, that you will never experience a deeper darkness than the darkness of Jesus. Maybe people around you, you're saying, they don't know what I feel. Well, maybe they don't. Maybe they've never experienced it. And for those of you who've experienced real and deep darkness... It's really hard to communicate what it is. Really hard. In fact, even in trying to communicate it, it kind of makes the darkness deeper. But to know that Christ went deeper, it, it, somehow it really does help. You've taken my companions and loved ones from me. Jesus died alone. The darkness is my closest friend. Darkness came over the whole land when Jesus died. You've put me in the lowest pit. You've overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've made me repulsive. They looked upon him and they spat upon him. He was made repulsive. And that's why for me, this song is a great song. Because it allows a Christian to express their deepest fears. Whilst at the same time not giving up their faith. Whereas a much shallower view of Christianity will say, if you say this, you can't really be a Christian. Actually, you can. And many Christians have, and many Christians have gone through that. I pray that you wouldn't, and that you would never experience it. But if you do, this song is here for you. Now, um, we're going to, to sing again, if the band come up. We're going to sing the song uh, before I want to say something about the communion, and a little, just a little bit more about this. How deep the Father's love for us. This is a song about going deep, deep, deep into the, 
Psalm 88 is a song about going deep, deep, deep into human psyche and human experience. And the Father's love for us is deeper than that. And Christ went deeper. So let's stand and sing how deep the Father's love for us. Now, I want to share with you something I read from uh, John Owen's discourse on communion, where in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, this is Paul writing, of course, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Owen asks, how can our faith lay hold of Christ when we are just in this dark world in so many ways? And I found this really helpful. He said, first of all, by adherence, by tr- cleaving and trusting in God in Christ, so that when God tells us about his love and shows us his love and demonstrates his love in Christ on the cross, we believe what he has said and we trust his promises. And that is important. It's important not to have faith in faith. It's important to have faith in Christ. And then Owen says we should apply that to ourselves. He loved me and gave himself for me. And he said, well, why would God love me? Why would God show this special love to me? And the answer is because he does. We don't look for something in yourself that you can say, well, I deserve the love of God. I would suggest if you think, well, why wouldn't he love me? You're, You're not... You haven't grasped what being a Christian is and you, don't, you know very little about yourself. But Jesus loved the church and gave himself for it, as he says in Ephesians. Why? That he might wash and purify it and present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle. So you come to the Lord's table and there is these dark thoughts, these bad deeds, this overwhelming discouragement the frustration and the anger and the perpetual sin and everything else and you say I can't take it I can't take it and Jesus says take it why because he's removing the spots and wrinkles he's going to purify us and maybe just one other thing that I took from Owen that I just found so helpful he said this is free and it's undeserved and it's invincible the love of God What can separate us from the love of God? And he quotes the Song of Solomon. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If you've experienced Psalm 88, or you are experienced Psalm 88, one of the worst things that can happen is that you feel, well, that's me, separate from God, cut off from God. I feel that, therefore it must be true. But many waters cannot quench love. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I've had a friend um, who was in such despair that he took his own life. And people think, well, that's it. You know, he wasn't trusting God. I mean, he's going to you know, commit suicide. You're going to hell. No, I have no question at all that he's in heaven. He loved the Lord. He went through this period of incredible despair and darkness. You have to, to to be at that stage. And yet, God's love covers that sin as well. Covers all sin when we're trusting not in ourselves, but in Jesus. We adhere to Jesus. We apply it to Jesus. And 
For me, I'm sorry to go back to Leonard Cohen, but Cohen would sing about the darkness and he couldn't sing about the light. Occasionally he talked about the light breaking in and stuff, but he, he got the darkness. I think, I, I really do think he understood the darkness. But we, we need to understand the darkness. We need to have some idea of the darkness, but we need to realize that beyond the darkness, there is someone better and there is something better and that our troubles and darkness in this life are momentary and according to Paul, light in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us. And we plead with the Lord that he would reveal some of that glory here on this earth, that we would know the joy and the light of the Lord right now. But when we don't, don't give up. Don't say that's it. You'll, you'll, he leads you, yes, beside still waters. But also you will go through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't fear any evil when that is the case. So as we sit at the Lord's table, this is for those who are believers in Jesus. You take the bread, remembering Christ's broken body. You drink the cup, knowing that it's receiving forgiveness from Jesus. I receive from the Lord, says Paul, what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So God has just told you in his word, yes, the darkness doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. But you also have to hold on to and believe this, that deeper than the darkness is the the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, which covers and guarantees absolutely everything. Let's give thanks. Lord, bless this bread and this wine to us. May it be more than a symbol. May it be that we realize as we take it what your death means. And may we know your forgiveness and peace in your name. Amen. Now, what the elders are going to do is they'll come and take the bread. And uh, as soon as the first row or so is done, then the wine will follow immediately afterwards. Uh, So please just take the bread and and eat it as it comes. Pass it on. Uh, If you are a Christian, if you are not a Christian, then please, I ask you not to take it. It won't do you any good. Um, But just... Uh, leave it and basically pray that you would come to know the Lord. And then after you've taken the bread, the wine will come and again the same thing. So can I ask the elders for taking the bread first?